Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Today on our show, we welcome Mr. John Carr, Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. He also serves as the Washington Correspondent for America Magazine and as Adjunct Professor in Georgetown's Theology Department. For 20 years, Mr. Carr was the Director of the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Late last year, Mr. Carr wrote an article in America that named eight lessons to help us move forward from the sexual abuse crisis. As the heads of all the bishops' conferences from around the world meet at the Vatican soon to confront this crisis, we invited Mr. Carr to join us and offer us his insights both about this crisis and in relation to his broader work in his initiative at Georgetown. John Carr, thank you for joining us. Uh, Leonard, I'm happy to be with you. Now, I mentioned in the intro the article you wrote last fall in response to the sexual abuse crisis. That article bore the title, Eight Lessons I've Learned in Dealing with 50 Years of Sexual Abuse. What are some of the key things you learned, and how can these lessons help us move forward? Well, this has haunted me for five decades. I went to a high school seminary in Minnesota where I experienced sexual abuse. I worked for two dioceses, I worked for 25 years for the bishops' conference and worked for some of the bishops who've been at the center of this crisis, and now I'm at Georgetown working in Washington, which in some ways is ground zero for Mm -hmm. this round. What I've learned is that the moral, spiritual, especially human costs are massive. But so are the institutional costs, and my fear is that we're not only losing our credibility, we're losing a sense of mission. Some Mm -hmm. of the things I learned, when I worked for Cardinal Hickey in Washington, I was brought in when a senior cleric was approved of a horrible case of abuse. And to simplify, all the clerics in the room looked at this through the eyes of their brother priest, and I was the father of teenage boys. And I saw it very differently. And so the lesson I took was there need to be more parents in the room when these decisions are made. A corollary to that is lay people need to be much more involved, not only in this, but other parts of the church's governance and life. But I also learned that lay people uh, helped enable uh, this. There were lawyers and therapists and uh, people in the structure who also focused on protecting the institution instead of vulnerable individuals. Uh, Sadly, I think many bishops are isolated. Uh, They have people who reinforce their judgments. And as a result, I'm sorry to say, they lack the empathy that allows them to understand the anguish and the anger uh, that uh, parents feel. Uh, I work with Cardinal Law uh, at the height of the Boston scandal. And at one point he said to me, no one talks to me the way you do. And it wasn't a compliment. Hmm. And I said, I'm a parent, and I see this differently. Probably, in some ways, the most brutal uh, experience has been relatively recent, in, aside from my own experience of sexual abuse, was Cardinal McCarrick, his dear friend, a mentor, a leader, 
uh, I admire. I've worked with him. I've traveled with him around the world. I was crushed by what I learned, and I had asked him straight out if any of this was possible, and he looked me right in the eye and said, if any of that were true, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I, I, one of the lessons I think I've learned is be very wary of those who try and weaponize the sexual abuse crisis for their own ecclesial or ideological ends. For example, I shared with uh, Archbishop Viganel when he was nuncio uh, my sense that uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Ninestad in Minnesota uh, had to resign. And he said to me, we can't give in to the the media and the lawyers. And I said, every day that he's there is a good day for yeah. uh, those. So be careful. And then the, the final sort of lesson for me is I found myself, I talked to a lot of journalists about this, and I found myself saying silence is a big part of this problem. And then I realized that I had been silent uh, about my own abuse, hmm. uh, experience of abuse. I, uh, <clears throat> I hadn't told my parents who passed on. I hadn't told my wife, certainly not my children. And... Uh, my silence, my secrets uh, were a part of this problem, and I decided that I ought to share them, share what I had experienced. And I found that not only freeing for me, but of some comfort uh, to others. So it, it, I've been blessed to work for the church. I've had wonderful jobs. But uh, as I said, I've been haunted by this evil that found a place in our family of faith. On behalf of many, thank you for sharing, as you have uh, with all of us. As you said, you know, you call it a blessing to be able to work for the church. I wonder, as a Catholic layperson yourself, it would seem to many, to me, that you would have every reason to hesitate in entrusting yourself personally, spiritually, to the church. How have you done that? There, there was a time when this practically broke me, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, I was not working for Catholic charities or for a wonderful parish. I was working for the bishops. Mm-hmm. And I had to find a way to separate, in some ways, my work from my faith, because in some ways my work was hollowing out my soul. I, I, did, I was a part of great things, defending the unborn, Working against poverty, uh, I traveled the world and saw people defending human life and dignity in the name of Jesus, and it lifted me up in so many ways and inspired me. Yet I also was working for people uh, who, frankly, looked the other way or enabled uh, horrible sins and crimes. Uh, And so uh, I had to separate my faith in Jesus Christ, my commitment to the Church, to, from the terrible failures of some of our leaders. Who supported you during these times, especially as you said, you know, you, you carried a lot of this personal burden yourself. Where did you find support, uh, sustenance uh, for yourself? Because I had not shared it, uh, I drew... I don't know how people cope without strong family ties and a good local parish because those lifted me up and, and kept me on, uh, on the straight and narrow. Uh, 
the uh, to, to be honest, I've been in recovery for a long time. Mm-hmm. Everybody in my uh, family was uh, an alcoholic, and I eventually faced up to that, frankly, in the midst of the scandal. And so a uh, 12-step program uh, that I try and live with every day. To be honest, uh, my faith is not very complicated. Uh, the serenity prayer <laughs> is a centerpiece of uh, how I view my mission in the church and as a Christian in society. And I've been surrounded by wonderful colleagues and friends here at Georgetown uh, we've got a great team. I taught a seminar for 20 young students who are hungry for what we have. I played a small role in, you know, uh, defending the unborn and lifting up the poor in our country. So I have nothing to, to be overwhelmed by. But there were times I felt overwhelmed. And putting this together uh, is something the whole church needs to do, and that's part of the reason. Uh, why I spoke out. One of the things I say consistently is we should not minimize for an instant uh, the harm that was done, but we are more than our institutional failures. This is a community that serves the least among us in every place on earth in every part of this country. Uh, People are sheltered. Food is provided. Uh, Every weekend, millions of us gather uh, to worship our God and reflect on how we can be better people. Uh, at Georgetown, at Notre Dame, in inner city schools in Washington, young people find not only knowledge but develop character. So, we, as I said, we shouldn't minimize or diminish the, the damage, uh, but we should not define ourselves only by our failures. We need the church. Frankly, our society needs the church, and that's one of the reasons we need to renew and reform our church. Our nation, our world needs the gospel, and so getting the church in a place where its credibility and integrity uh, is intact so that we can proclaim the gospel and share the principles of Catholic social teaching is an essential part of uh, recovering from this crisis. One of the things I fear is not only victims and their families and uh, the church as an institution that have been hurt by all this. I fear that the unborn and the undocumented and the poor and vulnerable have been hurt in an entirely different way because the voice of the church is in some ways compromised or uh, diminished by these scandals. They feel the cost of the credibility, the loss of credibility in the church, in other words. You're listening to oh. credibility and priority, Indeed. frankly. Oh. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with John Carr, director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. As you were just mentioning, this is though we don't want to define the church simply according to uh, these failings, these severe failings, but also need to embrace and continue to uh, rededicate ourselves to the mission of the church. At the same time, the Pope has called, as we know, the heads of the uh, bishops' conferences from around the world to the Vatican for a uh, global meeting of sorts to address the ongoing crisis. What would you hope that those bishops would be able to do together? Well, first of all, uh, this is a big deal. Uh, People who dismiss this uh, 
don't know uh, the institution. This never happened before. I've been candid in saying I think Pope Francis has been too slow mm-hmm. uh, to face up to this. Uh, I am hopeful. I, my experience is that when Pope Francis listens to victims and survivors, he uh, gets this right. I think of the, the aftermath of Chile, and I hope that uh, not only the Holy Father, but also the bishops who gather in Rome will listen to survivors and their families. Uh, this is seen around the world as a problem for the U.S., maybe Europe, uh, maybe Australia, but uh, it's not a global problem. And that's simply not right. And one of, the, one of the achievements of February ought to be that the entire church sees the problem of sexual abuse of, the, of vulnerable as a global test of who we are as uh, Jesus' church. And we're not there yet. So I'm, I think that is a big challenge, and I am both hopeful and anxious uh, that that happened. This makes me wonder about how the response to this crisis is really, in some ways, calling forth new modes of leadership. And I, I want to kind of connect that to something you were talking about earlier, where you mentioned, you know, there need to be more parents in the room and there need to be lay people involved. But you also sort of mentioned that having lay people just in the room isn't the silver bullet. That doesn't solve everything. Um, because as you said, some in many cases, lay people were part of the insulation or part of the a kind of clerical thinking perhaps. What new modes of leadership or new forms of leadership ought we hope to see emerge in response to the crisis, which I imagine is not just about the crisis, but it's about more faithfully following the mission, the evangelizing mission of the Church? One of the most intimidating things about this is not only the scale of the evil, it's that it revealed a culture which is harmful not only when it's hiding up, hiding terrible acts of individual priests, but that it reflects a leadership that is not transparent or accountable. Uh, and that's true not only uh, in dealing with sexual abuse, that's true in a lot of ways. And so what goes on in Notre Dame, what's going on here in Notre Dame at Georgetown is we're trying to prepare future leaders who can help shape and carry out the mission of the church as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, Taking our principles into public life is what the gospel asks of us. We're called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I spent 25 years trying to help the bishops be better pastors and teachers. And as I said, it was a great blessing in so many ways. But I have felt for a long time that the missing, underdeveloped dimension of this is lay women and men uh, carrying these principles into public life as salt and light. Mm. If you look at our country now, so polarized, so divided, so lacking in moral leadership, where are the institutions, where are the communities, where are the leaders that we can find a different way forward? And I have to believe that our church, with its commitment to human life and dignity, to solidarity, uh, to justice, 
should be a big part, not only in transforming itself, but repairing our society. That seems to me to touch on what you were you were mentioning just earlier, that our society, the world, needs the church. And I know that your initiative at Georgetown, again, the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life, is really invested in proposing new ways of engaging in the public sphere. I know, as you were mentioning, you're deeply committed to addressing the climate of polarization in politics and public life. But distinctively, it seems like offering Catholic social, Catholic social thought as a source of healing for this endemic problem. What does the social teaching of the church have to offer public life, especially in response to the polarizing tendencies? Well, it, as you suggest, I, I think the principles of Catholic social teaching offer a path forward on renewal and reform of the Church in response to the sexual abuse crisis, the respect for human life and dignity, human rights and responsibilities, uh, solidarity and subsidiarity. These, these are old ideas, but they have very current relevance for our own institutional reform. And they also offer uh, an alternative path forward to a deeply divided country. If we are not focused on the life and the dignity of the human person, whether it's the unborn child in the womb or whether it's uh, that uh, undocumented child in a, I don't know what to call it, a holding place on the border. Uh, we focus on the least of these as a measure of our uh, moral commitment as Christians, those are not the priorities of our, the federal government. Uh, so we have an alternative way of looking at the world, which we ought to offer not in a, as a partisan weapon or an ideological uh, uh, framework, but as a contribution to the common good. And there's no talk about the common good today. And uh, if you were to ask where in our society could you find leaders and institutions that have the ideas, the experience, and the institutions that could make a difference, I think the Catholic Church would have to be among them. But there are two things that have to happen. One, we have to reform ourselves to be credible. And second, we have to use those institutions and share those principles in a way that people are equipped, uh, frankly, to be more Catholic than conservative or progressive, Democrat or Republican. Hmm. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to John Carr of Georgetown University. To be politically active, to be politically involved and engaged as a Faithful Catholic seems perhaps like one of the things that's more difficult to do now than it has been in the past, but maybe we always feel that way, that it's always difficult. But I imagine one of the things that we come up against either as individual Catholics or as a Catholic community is that to be politically active often means buying one whole block of agenda items or another whole block of agenda items, but those blocks don't hold together the things that need to be held together, as you're pointing to that preserve and promote the dignity of the human person. For example, the dignity of the prenatal child and the dignity of immigrants tend to get separated into rival blocks. So what are we Catholics to do if we're consistently presented with these binary options of one or the other? First of all, uh, acknowledge the truth. Uh, 
I think we need more Catholic Democrats, more Catholic Republicans, but we can't be blind adherents to our party. We have to work within our party for our values. Secondly, uh, I've worked most of my life with the homeless, uh, people on the streets trying to provide shelter. I find myself politically homeless these days. And one of the things I've learned is when you're homeless, uh, you need to find a shelter. You need to find a place out of the wind where you can sort of gather yourself. And I would like to think our initiative is uh, one of those shelters Mm -hmm. where people with differing perspectives, different ecclesiologies, different parties can search for the common good and find some common ground. And we do that on a monthly basis where we bring people with very different perspectives together and try and ask them to focus on how their faith could lead them to um, act together. We did a session last spring on polarization in the church, and, you know, we had the nuns on the bus, and we had the March for Life. Uh We had, you know, the far right and the far left, but mostly, frankly, we had younger leaders who were tired of those polarities, who are looking for ways to share their faith in a way that makes a difference. I spent a brief time up at Harvard University. How I got there, I'll never quite understand. (laughs) Harvard is a very secular place, but I found there, and I find at Georgetown, there is a hunger for what we have to offer. We have only been around five years at Georgetown, our little initiative. We had had a contest for what was the most boring name, and the initiative (laughs) on Catholic social thought and public life won, because it (laughs) describes what we do. But in five years, we've done more than 60 gatherings, uh, and we've drawn more than 20,000 people. And you know what? No one gives a speech. President Obama came to be a part of a panel on poverty with people who disagreed with him. We have had uh, Cardinal Supic and Archbishop Gomez. We had Jim Martin, and we had Robbie George. We had uh, Sister Simone from the... uh, Network and Helen Alvarez, who's a leader of the pro-life movement. We try and remind people that we share a set of ideas and a common commitment to human life and dignity and to try and find ways to move that forward. And we'll try and do that in the midst of this crisis. But more importantly, we're going to keep doing it as we try and reform and renew our institution. And one of the things I say to bishops and others We need to get this right, not only for our own institutional integrity, but because the world, our society, needs our mission. And uh, that would be one of the worst costs of the scandals if we had so damaged the body of Christ that we couldn't proclaim, proclaim the gospel and make the case for human life and dignity in a way that people could hear it. I'm thinking of how you were talking about the sort of education and formation of young people and forming them into that vision of a common good, of not just going along blindly with the options that are presented, but really innovating and finding the dignity of the human person at the center of the advocacy and the work of public life. What kind of formation do you think the next generation of Catholic leaders really needs? How do we form those people? What are, what are some of the important elements that you think? Well, I'm, I'm well beyond my area of expertise. I talk more as a 
parishioner and, uh, uh, you know, I, I only play an academic. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the, we all uh, do. I, well, I I think uh, several things are essential. We ought to know our own tradition. Mm-hmm. I find uh, I'm on a number of boards. I chair the board of Bread for the World. Mm-hmm. Non-Catholics are a lot more interested in Catholic social teaching than a lot of Catholics. Yeah, we've been thinking about this for centuries, and we have a different way of looking at the world. Secondly, you combine that with experience. Who shelters the homeless? Who feeds the hungry? Who provides health care and education in poor communities? We're the largest non-governmental provider of basic human needs in our society. Who is the global institution? Uh, the, the people coming from Guatemala and Honduras are not our enemies in, in the eyes of faith. They're sisters and brothers. So I think you need to anchor young people in a tradition that invites them in instead of pushing them away. Uh, and nothing, frankly, pushes them away faster than recruiting them for uh, one side or another in our ecclesial battles. Mm. It, uh, people are looking for a way to live and a place to stand, not an army t- to, to fight with. And mm. so I really worry about the, the ideological combat that exists, particularly among people of my age, that uh, use our faith and Catholic social teaching and the scandals as weapons, as a way to score points in our own uh, ecclesial um, warfare. Yeah, and what ends up getting proclaimed is not the gospel, but more factionalism because you're recruiting more to your side. Well, well, and and this the scandal touched every corner of the church, right. and you know, some people want to blame Pope Francis. I, we've been blessed with three remarkable popes in my service of the church. All have done great things, all of whom have contributed to my development and enrichment as Catholic. And to pit them against each other is not only inaccurate; it's uh, frankly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't have much time for the ecclesial wars, and uh, the reality is the students in my class, we reach out to young leaders on Capitol Hill and in Washington, and there's almost no place where they can gather young Catholics uh, in public life that's not partisan, that's not ideological. And people are seeing their faith as a resource not only for their own personal lives, but their professional lives and a tool in contributing to the common good. So I, I think in some ways this is not hard. Uh, the church expects me to keep my vows. Its leaders ought to keep theirs. I will do everything I can to protect my children. The church ought to do everything it can to protect our children. I'm accountable for my actions. Our leaders have to be accountable for theirs. And what drives me forward, what gives me hope, is mission, and the church needs to return to mission. Amen to that. You've been listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We've had with us John Carr of Georgetown University, director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life. John, thank you so much for joining us today for this really rich and wonderful conversation. Leonard, it was a privilege. Thank you for your good work. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Today.